Thanks. Uh, today's Bible reading comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example of everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it, is no longer, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all once again. And hopefully those of you who were involved last night had a good time. Now, I know that some of you have been reading through Galatians as part of our church's Bible reading program, or at least you're supposed to be doing that, right? How have you found it? Have you been able to follow Paul's argument okay, or have you found it challenging? Overall, Galatians a bit tricky, but it's only tricky really because we don't think like Jews. To understand Galatians, we actually need to understand the Jewish nature of the problem that Paul was addressing. I believe that the key to interpreting Paul's letter to the Galatians lies in understanding the identity of the law that Paul was talking about, including how to understand the phrase, the works of the law, using the Old Testament to help us. Overall, Paul uses the word law 32 times in the book of Galatians. So when he says things like in Galatians 3, verse 11, it is clear that no one is justified by the law before God. How are we meant to understand that? I reckon the vast majority of evangelical Christians think the law that's mentioned at this point is God's law in general, you know, whatever God might command us or expect us to do. At least for me growing up, that's the understanding that I had as a result of the teaching that I had received on this particular issue. And pretty much any good evangelical preacher will stand up and say that In Galatians, Paul was dealing with the issue of legalism, where legalism is defined as being the attempt on the part of human beings to try to impress God by our own efforts at being good. Have you heard that kind of explanation before? You probably have because I hear it all the time. It goes like this. Friends. We're saved by grace through faith. 
not by works. Don't think that somehow you can please God by doing X, Y, or Z. None of us can please God through human activity or effort because we're all sinners. That's why we need Jesus who paid the price for us. That's a brief summary of the typical evangelical interpretation of Paul's overall message in Galatians. The problem is, though, it's not accurate in terms of the Jewish problem that Paul was addressing. While it's true that all people are sinners and everyone needs Jesus to be our atoning sacrifice, the traditional evangelical interpretation of Galatians fails to understand the true purpose of Paul's argument. And we can explore this issue by considering the meaning of the phrase, the works of the law. Paul uses this phrase six times in Galatians. He uses it three times in chapter 2, verse 16, and once each in chapter 3, verses 2, 5, and 10. But what does the works of the law mean? Now, one of the problems that we have is that in all of the Bible, only Paul uses this particular phrase. So there are different opinions about what it means. Let's have a look at the different possibilities. As far as I know, there are around six different options for the meaning of the works of the law. So let's look at the first three options to start off with. Some people think the works of the law means doing God's commandments. Others broaden this out a bit by saying the phrase the works of the law indicates any attempt at trying to do good. A variant on this is the view that the phrase the works of the law basically means human effort, the foolish attempt at trying to please God by trying hard to be good. Those three explanations are all variations on the traditional interpretation that views the works of the law as talking about legalism. According to this kind of interpretive approach, legalism occurs whenever people try to use God's law or their own concept of what's right and wrong as the standard that they follow as a means of pleasing or impressing God. But there are problems with those definitions. The question at this point is, when Paul used the word law, did he just have in mind God's commandments in general or human morality? The answer to that must be no. And the clearest verse in Galatians that shows this is chapter 3, verse 17. In Galatians 3.17, Paul actually identifies the law that he has in mind. Please notice the wording of this verse. Paul says, I am saying this, the law that came into existence after 430 years does not annul a covenant ratified by God 
so as to nullify the promise. Now we need to note here the background that according to Exodus 12 verses 40 and 41, Israel had been living for 430 years in Egypt when the Exodus took place. So in this verse, Paul's saying that the covenant of promise that God made with Abraham cannot be annulled by the law which came into existence 430 years after Israel arrived in Egypt. So simple question. What law is Paul talking about here? What law came into existence 430 years after Israel had been in Egypt? I think anyone with any understanding of the basic storyline of the Old Testament or anyone familiar with Judaism would know what law Paul was talking about. Think about the book of Exodus and the key events that happened in that book. And the answer should be obvious. Like what law comes in the middle of the book of Exodus after Israel's redemption from Egypt? But in case we're still not sure, have a look at chapter 3, verse 19. In this verse, Paul explains why the law came into existence, why it was given. Answer. The law was added, and that's interesting language, because adding implies it was given in addition to something else. It was added, says Paul, for the transgressions until the seed about whom it had been promised came, having been commanded through angels by the hand of a mediator. So then, what law was added to basically cause sin to increase in the lead up to Christ, the promised seed or offspring of Abraham? What law came from God via angels into the hands of a mediator? Putting these things together, we need to ask this question. What law came into existence more than 430 years after God's covenant with Abraham and was commanded by God and delivered through angels who, by the way, were associated with fire in Jewish thinking, and into the hands of a mediator? What do you think the answer is here? It should be obvious, I think. It's the law of Moses, surely. We know the story. Moses ascended Mount Sinai and entered the fiery cloud at the top of the mountain to step into the presence of Yahweh to receive the law and communicate it to Israel. Moses was the mediator of the law, the particular law that's otherwise known as the law of Moses. So by speaking of law in general or the human effort to do good, the advocates of the first three options regarding the works of the law actually overlook the historical particularity of the law that Paul had in mind when he was writing his letter to the Galatians. 
So when you read the word law in Galatians, in all but one instance, the law in question is the law of Moses. The only exception is in chapter 6, verse 2, where Paul speaks of the law of Christ. Now, this observation that Paul was actually writing about the law of Moses has led to the emergence of the other three options for the meaning of the works of the law, where the law in question is specifically to be identified with the law of Moses. Please notice in particular option number four. Now, this is the view that I hold. The phrase, the works of the law, in Paul's mind and in Jewish thinking, simply means doing the law of Moses. I'll explain what this means and why I hold to this view shortly. But please notice options numbers five and six. Some scholars agree that the law that Paul has in mind in Galatians is the law of Moses. But then they either want to expand it or to narrow it down. Option number five expands it. Advocates of this view say that, sure, Paul was speaking about the law of Moses, but the principles of Paul's argument apply to any form of law keeping, whether that be divine law or human law. So people who hold to option number five still think that the problem that Paul was addressing was some form of legalism. And this can be contrasted with the sixth option, where the law of Moses is effectively narrowed down to the distinctive parts of the law of Moses that were preventing fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. So, for example, following this option, it was really circumcision, the food laws and the teaching about the Sabbath that was creating division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So there you have a brief summary of the different options regarding the meaning of the phrase, the works of the law. But why is it that I go for option four, even though it has cost me in terms of my career as a church minister and as an ex-lecturer in theology? I go for option four because that is consistent with how the Old Testament talks about the law of Moses and its function under the Old Covenant. Friends, all we need to do is to read the Old Testament carefully, paying attention to how the Old Testament itself speaks about the law of Moses. When we do that, the result is the language of doing the law is simply the characteristic way that faithfulness to God was described under the Old Covenant. Now, there are five explicit instances in the Old Testament where the verb do takes the noun law as its direct object, not to mention numerous instances where synonyms of the word law are found as direct objects of the verb do and synonyms of the verb do as well. I'll just cite today three clear instances so you get the idea. Let's have a look at these. In Joshua 22, 
verse 5. Joshua encourages the Transjordanian tribes of Israel to make sure that even though they'll be living on the eastern side of the Jordan River, away from the rest of Israel, Joshua commanded them, make sure you do the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, has commanded you. Please notice what Joshua is saying here. He's saying that Moses commanded the tribes of Israel to do the law. Doing the law was something good for Old Covenant Israel. It wasn't something bad or evil. It was what God, via Moses, had commanded them to do. We can also look in 2 Kings chapter 17. In this verse, the narrator reflects on Israel's disobedience to God and their failure to keep covenant with God. And in 2 Kings 17 verse 37, the narrator recalls how God had said to Israel, you shall take care to do the statutes and the judgments and the law and the commandment always. Once again, Israel's obligation under the old covenant was to do the law. And finally, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we get the famous godly priest Ezra. He's described as being a man who had set his heart to study the law of Yahweh and to do it. Ezra understood his old covenant responsibility before God to do the law, to live out his life in accordance with God's word in the context of grace. Friends, this orthodox Old Testament concept of doing the law is precisely what Paul was referring to when he used the phrase, the works of the law. To work means to do. And the law in question is the law of Moses. Now, given all of that, and I've only given you a small picture of the Old Testament evidence today, but given all of that, it should be obvious to anyone who has read the Old Testament carefully that the phrase, the works of the law, is simply Jewish terminology for following the law of Moses. In other words, under the Old Covenant, Israel was expected to perform the works of the law. They were expected to live according to God's law in the context of sacrificial grace. For them, the works of the law weren't inherently evil or universally bad. They actually represented the right response to God during the Old Covenant age. The phrase, the works of the law, conveys the biblical idea of living faithfully with God according to the terms of the old Mosaic covenant. And this is obvious to anyone familiar with Judaism. And to be honest with you, I constantly walk around shaking my head in disbelief that so many of my evangelical brothers and sisters cannot see this 
or accepted. So in Galatians, Paul isn't talking about legalism. He's actually talking about the relationship of three covenants, the Abrahamic covenant of promise, the Mosaic covenant of law, and the Christian covenant of gospel. And in Galatians, Paul is using key Old Testament quotations to explain how the new covenant in Christ is similar to God's original covenant with Abraham in that it offers salvation to Gentiles and how the new covenant in Christ contrasts with the old covenant that restricted salvation to Israel. And significantly, because the new covenant is Gentile friendly, it's wrong for Jewish Christians to force Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to follow the law of Moses. Friends, I find it ironic that in my attempt to let the Old Testament define what the works of the law are, I've been criticised by my fellow evangelicals and opposed by some as a heretic and blacklisted. We evangelicals criticise Catholics for following human tradition rather than the word of God, but from my perspective, Evangelical theologians who preach that Paul was opposing legalism aren't looking at the biblical evidence. Instead, they're really just following tradition. They're following Protestant tradition about what the works of the law were. But in doing this, they themselves are going against the implications of what Paul is teaching in Galatians. You see, the wider implication that stems from Paul's teaching in Galatians is don't follow tradition at the expense of the gospel. Don't blindly follow tradition, whether it be Jewish, Catholic, Protestant or whatever. The only traditions that matter for salvation are those that have been passed down to us from Christ and the apostles as part of the new covenant gospel. So, friends, when you read Galatians and also Romans, please try and let the Old Testament guide you about what the works of the law really were. Only then will we get it right and fully understand what Paul was saying about the supremacy of faith in Christ for justification and salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we acknowledge to you that sometimes reading Paul's letters and the letter to the Galatians and also Romans in particular, often we're not fully sure about what he's saying even though there's a very strong interpretive tradition that we've all grown up in and heard that somehow Paul was dealing with the issue of legalism. Heavenly Father, today we've been encouraged to think in a little bit more of a Jewish way, to let the Old Testament try to help us define some of these key terms that Paul was using 
to then see that the works of the law was just the Old Testament way of speaking about the proper covenant response to God. But yet how this had come to an end with the coming of the gospel in Christ. And so now in the new covenant age, what matters is not the law of Moses or our attitude to the law of Moses. What matters is our attitude to Jesus, whether we accept the gospel or not. And we thank you, Lord, that in your plan of salvation, with the coming of the gospel, salvation has been opened up to Gentiles like us to participate in. Lord God, we acknowledge that these are difficult issues and there are different opinions. But we ask in all of this, whatever challenges might come our way, that you would help us to just keep on reading your word and to start to see the connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that as we do that, in terms of the spiritual discipline of reading the Bible, we'll grow in our understanding. And as we grow in our understanding, we know, Lord, that that will help us in our walk with you. So thank you for this encouragement from your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. See it. Uh, just get Reverend Stephen back on for Q&A. John's got one. Hopefully just a quick one. Um, you mentioned like you um, like kind of gave up a bit to um, stick to your beliefs of what the Bible is saying. Do you have any regrets about that? Yeah, I don't have any regrets. Um, it's just the way things are. Like in the end, I think what we're encouraged to do is to meditate on God's word and to keep on doing that. Actually, if I look back on things, I would say one of the greatest blessings in my life has been the opportunity to learn Hebrew and to read the Old Testament in the original language and to teach Hebrew to students because it's really been through learning Hebrew and teaching the Old Testament that that gave me the theological and historical background, which then helped me. So for a while, I could say for about 15 years of my life prior to uh, the late 90s, I guess you'd say, I was always a little bit confused as to why did the language that Jesus used and Peter and John, you know, they didn't really make a very strong distinction between a faith response and a response of doing. But then when you read Paul, it seems like he's doing something completely different. And so I do admit I was going around for 15 years kind of scratching my head and thinking, how do, it just doesn't make sense. How can Paul be saying something completely different to what Jesus says and and the rest of scripture even, even, even the way that the Old Testament works, it works in terms of covenants. But it was only having the opportunity to study Hebrew and being good at that and being invited to teach it to Bible colleges, focusing mainly on the Old Testament, but also then having the opportunity to teach Romans as well. I was able to see the connections. I was able to understand Paul in more of a Jewish light and to understand the genius of his argument that the vast majority of evangelicals to me seems like we've missed it. We've, we've just totally missed it. We've kind of oversimplified things and not seen exactly what Paul is saying. So the key really is understanding Paul more in a Jewish light. And I got to that point by reading the Old Testament in Hebrew. And if you do that, you start to 
understand the Jewish mindset more. And I think that's what's helped me. So even though it has cost me in terms of a career, you could say, I still look back and say, thank you, God. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to read your word in the original languages and to understand how it all fits together. Um, any questions on Zoom, Sandra? No? All right. Well, it looks like we just got one question on Padlet for you, Rev. Steve. Um, yep. They asked, do we still, in quotations, do in the New Covenant? Yes, definitely. If you have a look at even what Paul teaches about being a spiritual sacrifice, about serving God, about loving your brothers and sisters and doing good to all, <laughs> there's a lot of doing, right? So, yeah, it's interesting because of our interpretive tradition, the typical Protestant interpretive tradition that we've grown up in, a hard and fast distinction is made between believing and doing. So in other words, we want to sort of cut up the human response to God. So believing is a bit like an intellectual thing and doing is a bit more of a practical thing. It's interesting that in the Bible, you don't really get that. Uh, In James, we're going to do James and we'll see that kind of philosophical distinction between an intellectual faith and then doing, James does interact with that. But Paul himself, along with Jesus and the other authors, even in terms of how the language of faith and obedience is used in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament, they're viewed as synonyms. So you can say to someone, repent. You can say to someone, believe. You can say to someone, love your brother and sister. Follow me. Jesus often says, follow me. Well, what he's really saying by that is believe in me, right? So we've got to keep in mind here that from an Old Testament and Hebrew perspective, what is faith? Faith is related to the word amen. Faith is saying amen or yes to the revelation that God has given you. So for Paul, faith is our yes to the gospel. Now, the gospel doesn't tell us just what Jesus did. It also tells us what Jesus expects us to do as well. So if you're saying yes to Jesus, can you really just say, yes, okay, Jesus, I accept what you did for me on the cross, but all those other things you teach me about how I should live and respond to you, I'm not going to follow that? Is that really faith? All right, so Paul's faith versus works distinction, if you want to put it that way, is actually not a distinction that cuts the human person up into two parts. It's actually a distinction that operates in terms of covenants in salvation history, right? So what Paul is doing in a very Jewish way, he's seeing how the language, the typical language that's used for a particular salvation epoch represents that whole historical period. So he sees how the word faith was used of Abraham in Genesis 15 and says how Abraham was to respond to God, that was faith. And by the way, Abraham was a Gentile back then, right? And then he sees the narrowing down of righteousness to Israel under the old covenant. The primary language that is used at that point is the language of obedience and doing. It does also use the language of faith, by the way. Uh, The Old Testament does make a distinction. But the primary language that is used is the language of doing. And then he notes how from Habakkuk 2.4, which is a new covenant prophecy, the language of faith is used. What he's doing is saying faith applies in the new covenant age, just as faith applied in the Abrahamic age, which means that faith is open to Gentiles to participate in. That's his argument. And so by just talking about legalism, 
we totally skip over the details of what Paul is arguing in Galatians. And I think it's a kind of tragedy, really, from my perspective. I don't care how people want to treat me or whatever, but in the end, don't we want to understand God's word better? Isn't that the whole point here? So, yeah, there's a lot of doing, okay? It can be just used as a synonym for faith. Faith is saying yes to Jesus and the revelation that has been given to us in the gospel. So whether it's repent, whether it's love your brother, whether it's do good to all, whether it's believe in Jesus, they're all basically just talking about the same kind of thing, that positive response to Jesus. Thank you for the insight on that question. Um, uh, But it seems like that's all for uh, the Q&A.